Let me invite you again to um, open your copies of um, God's Word um, to, Matthew, uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll read my text in just a moment, starting in verse 26. But let me say two quick things. First of all, if you're beginning to plan for Christmas Day, I, I wanted you to know that we will be open. As you know, Christmas occurs on, uh, on a Sunday, and we will be here. We'll have one service. It's at 11 a.m., hopefully giving you plenty of time to do all that you need to do. Um, there will, however, be no child care. But, and, and, and I would say that the, the service would probably be a bit shorter. Um, but we, uh, we wanted to meet together on that day, which is the Sabbath, and of course is the celebration of Christ's birthday. We'll, we'll be there here, 11 o'clock. The other thing is this, guys. I'm about to read you the last portion of chapter 10, which is, um, which is unusual in, in several ways. But I want to remind you that this book was written to a group of, convert, a group of Jews who had converted to Christianity. They're living in Rome. Persecution breaks out. And they are thinking, we need to... Stop this persecution by going back to Judaism. You, you really got to keep that in mind or you're not going to understand all this that, um, that the author is doing. So with that in mind, follow as I read, beginning at verse 26, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, 
This endures forever. Um, why don't we just skip this? <laughs> uh, I mean, um, this is tough. I mean, um, it's so, what should we say, um, shrill in the years of modern years. It's just a bit too harsh for uh, the uh, 21st century uh, sophisticated mindset. So, um, I mean, did you, did, you, did you read it? Did you listen as I was? Listen, listen to this verse 27 again. Whoa. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Whoa. Let's just skip it. Joel Osteen does. Um, Clark Pinnock does. Uh, Rob Bell does. Why can't we? Well, let me read you just one sentence out of the mouth of Jesus. Um, this, is, this is just Luke 9, 26. He says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Hmm. We better go ahead and look at it. Let's do that. Let, let me try to start pastorally and tenderly by, by, by pointing this out. One of the things that this passage does is that it gives us a definition of the unpardonable sin. Which is a question that I am asked numerous times a year. And on occasion there are some who are asking it who are thinking that they themselves may have done it. That is the unpardonable sin. So, verse 26 really gives us a definition. You notice it says, um, there no longer remains the sacrifice of sins. There it is. There's, if you do this, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins. But look at it. <clears throat> First of all, guys, um, the unpardonable sin is not a single act. Look, look at the text. It says, if we go on sinning, gang, in the Greek, that's a, that's a present participle, which, um, which describes an action that's ongoing, it's continuous, it's repeated. It's, it's not an act. It's, it is rather like, you know, your, your studied position. That's what it is. But the second thing it says is that if you go on sinning deliberately, um, it is willful, uh, it's intentional, it's persistent, it's self-conscious. It's as if I'm saying I viewed the arguments for Christianity and I reject them. Um, if you commit the unpardonable sin, it wasn't any accident. And then the third thing we're told, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Gang, um, it's in the face of truth. Um, it's, it's as if I've heard all of the truth claims for Christianity and I reject all of them. So 
An unpardonable sin is ultimately the, the final abandonment of Christianity. But there's one other thing that I want you to see, and I think this might be a new thought for you in terms of a definition of the unpardonable sin. I want you to notice the connection between verse 25 and verse 26. Let me read it to you, as it probably ought to be read. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Guys, um, the unpardonable sin and neglecting to meet together are connected. Um, so often, those who commit the unpardonable sin are people who have come from the church. They dropped out of church. They've, they've turned their back on all this because, they, you know, they, maybe they went off to college. Yes, you know, they got in a philosophy class. And, uh, you know, my philosophy teacher told me uh, that that was a bunch of bunk. Gang, um, that's frightening. At the point of origin, so oftentimes in um, those who have committed the unpardonable sin, is those who have been exposed to the truth, oftentimes in the church, and have determined that that's enough of that. Now, let me say this too. If you are one who is wondering or is asking yourself, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Then most likely you haven't. <laughs> because you see, um, those who have really don't care and glad they did. But if you think you did, and yet you long for forgiveness that can only be found in Christ, then that simply means that you never really committed it. Because anyone who wants forgiveness in Christ, they can have it. But those who have committed this sin don't even want it. Hope that's helpful. Now, it's the result of having committed it that is so controversial today. Um... And, and it's become controversial recently. And when I say recently, I really mean the last couple hundred years, but particularly really recently with the release of books like one that, I mean, sold lots, written by Rob Bell entitled uh, Love Wins. Um... It is, the, it is the notion that um, we are just illumined ever since the Renaissance. We're, we're too enlightened, too sophisticated to believe in something that barbaric. Now, um, in reply 
I want you to look again at the language of the text. Um, Verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Verse 27. Uh, A fearful expectation of judgment and fury that will consume the adversaries. Verses 28 and 29 are of comparison. They're a contrast. It is uh, comparing the administration of the law under Moses. And then he says, verse 29, how much worse punishment. If you thought that was bad, how much worse this is um, deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged, (coughs) outraged the spirit of grace. And then look at the word vengeance. And then in verse 31, fearful thing. Now, gang, here's the first thing that I want you to realize. All of that language that I've just shared with you is New Testament language. In fact, um, the severest words found anywhere in the New Testament, it seems like it's almost um, intentional or intentionally placed coming out of the mouth of Jesus. The most prolific speaker or teacher about hell is Jesus. I've got 11 uh, texts written down there, but we don't have time to look at all of them. But can can I read you one? Just one. This is in Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Guys, that wasn't said by some backwoods, barbaric, uh, untutored, um, uh, pagan, demented imbecile. That was said by Christ. And yet, some of the Christian celebrities, I I mean, I saw this with my own eyes. Joel Osteen gets on the... the, um, television show with Larry King. Larry King asking him about these matters and this was, this was his reply. Well, I'm just not going to go there. Why? Ashamed? Ashamed of those words? Are you suggesting, sir? That you are more loving than Jesus Christ? Guys, I honestly think, I honestly think that these guys who want to eliminate all this stuff that is so uncomfortable, I think, I I, I think they think that they're making God appear more loving when in fact they're making him appear less. How so? Well, guys, um, to eliminate all this uncomfortable language, what they're asking us is, is this kind of thing compatible with a God of love? It's just inconceivable in their minds that God should punish that way. Then with all due respect, I'd like to ask you a question. 
How do you explain Calvary? What was that? Guys, how much did it cost that God, their God, the modern's God, how much did it cost that God to love me? Not much. But do you know how much it cost this God to love me? To save me? His son had to um, take on flesh and be uh, crucified and separated from the Father and taste hell for me. Guys, one of the things that I find so fascinating in this discussion is that no one ever mentions the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or Exodus 12 where all the firstborn were slain in, in Egypt or they, um, they don't mention the Red Sea and all the drownings there. Um, and I, and I, don't, I don't get it, but this is the reply to events like that. They say, oh yeah, we know about that. But that's in the Old Testament. And then I, which begs the question, okay, then did, did God change somewhere? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, he did. I mean, he, right, there, right there in the New Testament, I mean, um, uh, he changed. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I just told you that everything I read to you is out of the New Testament. I have not read anything this morning that came out of the Old Testament. In fact, I read you words that came out of the mouth of Christ. Oh, Dr. Young. I mean, now, wait a minute here. Wait just a second. I mean, you're not one of those fundamentalists, are you? I mean, uh... Uh, one of those guys that believe that hell is, um, is uh, more than a lake of fire. I mean, that lake of fire is just a symbol, right? Oh, yeah, it is. I wouldn't say it's just a symbol. Because do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, the nature of a symbol? A symbol is something that falls short of the reality to which it points. So you know what that means. It means that the reality to which that symbol is pointing is far worse than a lake of fire. In fact, I think any person in hell today would give anything they have if hell were only a lake of fire. Now, that's enough. Let me turn a corner here and show you the second thing that I want you to see in this text. It has to do with the motive of the author. Um, it's in there. He tells you why he makes these statements. It's in verse 36. For you have, he writes to his audience and he says, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. His motive is, you've, you, you cannot go back to Judaism. You've got to endure to the end. If you go back to Judaism, 
that would mean that you have committed the unpardonable sin. And then in verses 32 to 35, he mentions all of their earlier victories, all of those um, courageous endurances of theirs where they, where they accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession than the abiding one. Why would you give this up now? Because you say you have need of endurance. I want to read you another statement out of the mouth of Jesus. This is John 16, 1. And Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The pastor, Jesus, speaks to his little audience, his little band of 12, and he says, I'm saying these things to you. So that you won't fall away. The author of Hebrews is doing the same thing. You have need of endurance. You've got to hang in to the end. So you have the pastor Jesus saying things to his audience. So that they will endure and not fall away. You have this pastor, the author of the book of Hebrews, saying that to his audience and saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't fall away. And this pastor is doing the same thing. I say these things to you so that you won't fall away. Because to fall away would be to commit the unpardonable sin. Now, one other thing in the text. Okay then, pastor, if we've got to endure to the end, how do we do it? How do we do it in the face of persecution? How do we do it in the face of a culture that scoffs at all of this stuff that we talk about? How do we endure? Well, the author tells you in verse 38. uh, The famous 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Or the just shall live by faith. Guys, do you know that that statement is made four times in the Bible? It's made in Habakkuk 2. It's made in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and here. It's a famous text. It's even called the text. It's even called Martin Luther's text. You ever heard that? Well, let me tell you the story why it's called Martin Luther's text. Now, again, remember, he is telling his audience how it is that you're going to hang on, how it is that you're going to endure. And his answer is the just shall live by faith. This text became known as Martin Luther's text. There is a story about Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, as you know. Um, long before he nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg, long before that, he pays a visit to Rome, as did every faithful Roman Catholic. And uh, one of the things that you did while you were there to improve your status with God 
is that you climbed up what was known as the Scala Sancta. You've heard of the Scala Sancta, haven't you? (laughs) The sacred stairs. And they were stairs, supposedly, that Jesus had walked up when he appeared before Pontius Pilate. And those stairs, supposedly, had been flown to Rome by angels and dropped down in Rome. And so all of the pilgrims who visited Rome to carve off years of their purgatory and all, they would climb up on their knees the Scala Sancta. Well, one of those pilgrims was a man by the name of Martin Luther. And by the way, at the top of the stairs, there was something that was supposedly a drop of Jesus' blood. And so the pilgrims would, would climb up those stairs on their knees, kissing every step as they went, until they finally got to the top and they could kiss the spot where Jesus' blood was. While Martin Luther is going up those stairs, the text that began to thunder in his consciousness is this one. The just shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. Again and again, the just shall live by faith. And he'd he'd go to the next step and the just shall live by faith. And finally it broke through to his consciousness. And he stands up and he says, what am I doing? He picks up his skirts and he runs down the stairs and he launches the Protestant Reformation. All because of the truth that is found in that one statement. The just, they begin their life as a child of God by the exercise of faith. But how do they continue? They continue the same way they started. By the exercise of faith, by the looking away from myself and what I produced, And looking at the finished work of Christ. Stop looking at that. And start looking at this. This is how I began my life with Christ. And this is how I continue it. From day one. To 50 years later. How do I endure? By faith. And let me give you just a little bit of a preview. Do you know what chapter 11 is? That famous chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, that we'll get to in January. Do you know what it is? It is a series of stories about people who did what? They lived by faith. Story after story after story in Hebrews 11. Simply illustrating the principle of verse 38 of chapter 10. How do we endure the same way we started? We stepped into this household of faith by the exercise of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do I continue? By the exercise of faith in the, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Guys, do you remember this story? It's a parable. It's in Luke 18. 
It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. A publican means a, a, a tax collector. And they were hated back then. It's just a parable, but the parable is about these two men who go into the temple to pray. And you remember the, the story? The two men go in there to pray, and the Pharisee gets up front, and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that, that, those people. <laughs> not them. Uh. I mean, I'm not like that riffraff. No sorry, buddy. I'm, uh, I do this, and I do that, and I do the other. And then he says, the publican stood in the back of the room, the tax collector, and he beat his breast, and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified. Now, here's my question. When he gets down to his house, having newly been justified, how does he live now? Like a Pharisee? Does the saved publican now become a Pharisee and start earning his way? publican remains a publican for the rest of his days looking away from his own tragic behavior and fixing his attention on the finished work of Jesus Christ over and over and over again Here's a pastor who's looking at his people and saying, don't quit. Because if you fall away, that is to commit the unpardonable sin. Okay, then how do we hang in there? The just shall live by faith. From day one to 50 years later, ladies and gentlemen, I'm still looking away from self and onto Christ and Him crucified. Those are some pretty uh, harsh truths there, Dr. Young, that, uh, right there in that text. Yeah, they are. And I would much prefer to preach to you about the abundant loving kindness of God. But I just did. The cross on which the Prince of Glory died. It's the cross, ladies and gentlemen where the wrath of God is poured out in, in monumental measure so that I can now fall into the hands of mercy. Oh, my friends, it indeed is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an offended God. Don't do it. And if I loved you a smidgen, I would tell you that.
but the way that you avoid falling into the hands of justice is by falling into the hands of mercy. And you, like the publican, say, God, be merciful to me. Someone undeserving. But, oh, God, would you be merciful to this sinner? And then I live out the rest of my days comfortable having been scooped up by hands of mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, don't ever pray for justice. Don't ever pray that God will give you justice. He just might. But like the publican, we cry out, God. Would you be merciful to someone as guilty as I? And then we go down to our houses justified to live out the rest of our days fixing our attention on Christ and him crucified. And that's how you endure. Our Father, I, I pray that you will use this text to, um, as Jesus said, to uh, keep people from ever dreaming of falling away from the beauty of the gospel that you would uh, point out all over again the freshness and the, and the um, glory of a Savior who bore the wrath of God in a display of incomparable love. A God who paid that price so that I might be delivered. So, Father, the rest of my life, I'm going to live it being bathed over and over again in the beauty of the gospel. And the more I find its beauty, the more my heart changes and then so does my life. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior, people who are like Pharisees thinking that they have made their way into your presence on their own merit, Would you stop them in their tracks? Stop them from ever doing such a foolish and dreadful thing. Point them, O oh God, to the same place where the rest of the beggars in this room, including me, found bread. Point them to Christ. Christ and him crucified. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.